Welcome back, listeners, to Nasty Pasty Yes. I've had my first hiatus due to Christmas, and as a result, this episode is delayed. But enough of that for the moment. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and a new year. I certainly had loads to eat and drink, mostly the latter. Back on schedule now, though, and unfortunately, back to work too today. That sucks. Now, today's episode should have been out on Boxing Day, but with New Year's Day only yesterday, the festive season should still be in everyone's minds enough to enjoy today's films. It's seasonal slashes today, with 1984's Don't Open Till Christmas and 1980's New Year's Evil. Now, as we found out from our 12 Days of Christmas horror campaign, horrors set at the festive season are not uncommon, especially by today's standards. By the early 80s, we'd already had some classics like Black Christmas, Home for the Holidays and Silent Night, Bloody Night. New Year's Evil was released in 1980, the same year as the slasher was propelled into the public eye with Sean Cunningham's Friday the 13th, while Don't Open Till Christmas was rather late to the Christmas party by only getting to us in 1984. Today we've got the remake of Black Christmas, and also new classics like Krampus to keep our Yuletide terror yearnings at bay. Anyhow, let's kick off the last remainders of this festive season with Don't Open Till Christmas. A man in a Santa suit meets with his girlfriend and makes out with her in his car, when the pair are attacked and stabbed to death by an unknown murderer. Another old man, dressed as Santa in a club, is murdered when a spear is thrown through his head. Two inspectors, including Inspector Harris and Sergeant Powell from Scotland Yard, investigating the crime, visit the old man's daughter, Kate, and her boyfriend, Cliff, but they turn up no additional clues. Harris receives a Christmas present marked Don't Open Till Christmas, while another Santa on the streets of London is strangled with a cable tie and forced onto a chestnut grill, burning his face and incinerating him alive. A reporter called Giles hints to Sergeant Powell that he has some clue to the killer's identity, but it doesn't doesn't stop another Santa being shot in the mouth by the killer. Kate and Cliff meet up with a sleazy photographer friend, Jerry, who wants to photograph Kate and another model called Sharon. Having her don a Santa suit, Sharon and Cliff panic when they see some police patrols, as Sharon is actually naked underneath the suit. Sharon runs into an alley, only to be confronted by the killer, who wears a green coat and a pearl-white translucent mask. 
He runs the razor over her body, and realising that she's a girl, he puts the weapon away and runs. Sharon explains that his eye seems to smile and that he was quite tall to the inspectors, while the killer soon murders a Santa in a dating booth. Harris begins to suspect Cliff, while Powell talks to Giles, who insists that Powell should keep an eye on Harris. Some punk youths chase a junk Santa and steal his bike, leading him to wander off on foot into the London dungeon, where he encounters a dead body strung up. The killer pursues him and eventually stabs him in the gut with a dagger. The continued killings force Scotland Yard to put some undercover policemen out on the streets, dressed as Santa, to act as decoys. But a couple of them are killed at a funfair. One is stabbed with a spiked shoe and gauntlet, while his co-worker has a broken bottle jammed into his face. The model working at the dating booth, Sherry, is attacked by the killer and chased on the streets. He kidnaps her and chains her up in a room, telling her that he will kill her once she's thought of the error of her ways. Later that night, a Santa is killed in a theatre during a performance by actress Carolyn Monroe, who has a billhook jammed into his face and sent up on stage via a trapdoor. And the next night on Christmas Eve, a shopping centre Santa is castrated in a toilet. Kate suspects Inspector Harris after finding out that he visits a mental institution and she goes over to visit him in his flat where he explains that he has been suspended. Later in the evening, Kate is confronted by Giles, who has broken into her flat, and she reveals that she knows who he is, Harris's brother. Giles confesses to the killings, explaining that men dressed as Santa remind him of Christmas time. He stabs her to death when the phone rings and she lunges for it. Powell pursues him through a garage, but is electrocuted in a trap set by Giles. The next day on Christmas, Giles gives Sherry some food to eat at his hideout, but he lets his guard down when she talks about Christmas and she escapes. Encountering a dead end, the pair struggle which causes Giles to fall over the stair railings. Still alive, he grabs at Sherry, flashbacking to his childhood, when on Christmas Day his cheating father pushed his and Harris's mother down the stairs when they caught him in the act. Harris, waking from the same dream, opens his present, a music box, which explodes and kills him as he sits in the living room. What happened? Her boyfriend came back unexpectedly. I told you. I never saw the girl. After the cops came... So you spent all night looking for her? I spent all night looking for that shit Jerry! And when I found him... That's how I got this. Oh, yeah. Oh, I suppose this must be her now. Maybe she's looking for you, too. Hello, Cliff. What happened to your hand? Came into violent contact with a certain jaw. Hello, Inspector. Any news? No, I'm afraid not. Where were you last night, Cliff? Is that any of your business? He was with me. <laughs> yes. Yes, I know he was. Up to the point that you stormed out of that studio. But I'm interested in what he got up to after that. What's happened? Sharon, the model you met last night, was attacked in the street. Attacked? Who would attack her? Maybe you can tell me. You recall how she was dressed. Santa Claus. I don't believe it. You took that girl outside dressed in that costume after all that's happened? You must be mad. That wasn't my idea. I didn't think that... Wait a minute. I've been on the spot for two of these killings. You're thinking it could have been me. That's ridiculous. 
What possible reason could I have for going around killing Santas? Oh, none that we know of. I'll be seeing you around, Cliff. May I come and see you? Of course, Miss Bujalska. You know where my office is. No, I'd like to talk to you somewhere less public. <laughs> Here's my private number. There are very few of these out, Miss Bujalska. Kate. Uh... You're very welcome, Kate, but please, not today. In a bit of a break from the usual Killer Santa movies, Don't Open Till Christmas is a 1984 slasher flick with Santa-clad victims and set completely in the UK rather than the United States. Directed by a combination of British actor Edmund Purdom, writer Derek Ford and editor Ray Self... Don't Open Till Christmas has had a rather troubled production that has unfortunately left it a rather muddled end result. The plot of the film follows Inspector Harris of Scotland Yard, who is investigating a string of seemingly random killings in London, the only connective theme being that the victims are men in Santa suits. Similar to the Spanish Giallo film, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, and slasher film Amsterdamned, the victims are completely uncharacterised and nameless, being introduced to them mere seconds before they're killed, with much of the action focused on the detective work. While this is not a unique approach, having been done in Fulci's New York Ripper and Ken Hughes's video-nasty film Terrorize, it does have a rather dulling effect on the film as a whole, but first let's dig a little into the backstory of Don't Open Till Christmas. The film came about from the fruitful collaboration of Dick Randall and Stephen Manasian, not unlike our previous episode about Slaughter High, which the pair also did. Now, in between Pieces and 1982 and Slaughter High in 1986, the pair wished to create an exploitation work set in the UK. Having worked with Edmund Purdom on Pieces, and knowing of his notoriety in the UK for having starred in the video nasty Absurd, the pair asked him to star in the film. He agreed, with the condition that he was allowed to direct the picture. This was only the start of the film's problems, as although Purdom was a very professional actor, he was very much a novice in terms of directing, and was reportedly too lackadaisical on set, leading to delays and reshoots. Once the initial footage was shot, the work was deemed unsatisfactory, and Purdom stepped out of the directorial chair, to be replaced by writer Derek Ford. This proved even more disastrous, as Ford's drinking led to his firing only two days after getting the position. Finally, editor Ray Self took over the director's helm, which led to Alan Birkinshaw, the director of Killer's Moon and Ten Little Indians, being brought to the production to rewrite the script, and to direct additional gore sequences, as the work print version of the film was severely lacking in any bloodshed. This delayed the film by almost two years, as production had started around 1982, shortly after pieces had been released. The subsequent reshoots and the script changes led to the character of Dr Bridal, played by Nicholas Donnelly, to be deleted from the film completely, and the original ending altered. Finally, in 1984, the film was completed, but has a lot of vestigial characteristics that clearly show its troubled construction. The victims in the film are fairly unique for a horror Christmas horror, They're the ones dressed as Santa rather than the killer, but they're so incidental and so hastily presented as fodder that the film feels nothing more than a string of Santa killings, gory though they may be. 
We have some pretty grisly stuff going on in this, like multiple stabbings, a spear through the back of someone's head, a face shoved on a grill, bludgeonings with spiked shoes and gloves, a bottle to the face, a castration at a urinal, a bill hook in the face, and many others too. And some of the effects are actually not too bad either, making a few wincy moments that can easily satisfy gorehounds like me. It's more the pity, then, that the first of the film feels so unstable. The identity of the killer, for one example, is the film's main draw, as the only moments we see him, he's wearing a mask, alas Alice Sweet Alice, which is slightly translucent enough to obscure his identity. Maybe, again, it's a byproduct of having seen so many slashes and jello films, but I found it quite easy to work out who the killer was, and which characters were actually red herrings. While the film tries too hard to pin Harris as the killer, it's easy to push the audience elsewhere. The character of Cliff seemed entirely perfunctory, given that he takes up so much of the film's screen time and yet has nothing to do with the events at all, other than being a bit of a sleazeball at various times. And it's the same with Sharon, the model. Lots of characters are built up to be main protagonists, and then they either casually disappear or are just killed by the film's conclusion, including the so-called final girl that I'd expected, Kate. By the end of the film, Giles, who's the film's killer, manages to have eliminated everybody except for Harris and Sherry, the sex booth girl. Cliff and Sharon have vanished from the plot completely, but Sherry manages to finally push Giles off a flight of stairs, and in traditional fashion, Giles has survived the fall and begins choking her, at which point we do get a flashback as to why he's such a specific murderer. Now her fate is left ambiguous, while Harris opens a present, revealed to be from his brother, only for it to explode and kill him ending the film. So not only does the killer seem to survive the film's events, Harris seems to have degenerated to complete dementia and he opens a present from his brother, whom he knows is psychotic and also has a suspicion he might be the killer. It's a rather unsatisfactory ending and it leaves a bitter taste in the mouth, especially as the film showed promise with its murder sequences. The Christmas hate angle also isn't even carried out with continuity. Giles clearly has disdain for the holiday because his father was a cheat whose drunken behaviour ended in the death of their mother. He chooses males as his victims who are dressed as Santa, which is rather appropriate, but he notably lets Sharon go when he realises she's a girl. With this in mind, he earlier slashes up a girl for no reason other than being a witness, which I understand as he kills Kate in the same fashion, but why on earth does he kidnap Sherry and keep her alive? It's entirely inconsistent with both his previous treatment of witnesses and the fact that he shouldn't even target women at all, really. All these things make for a bit of a mess of a movie. There's certainly something here for people who like a bit of Yuletide slashings, as the death scenes are frequently peppered throughout the film enough to stave off any boredom by the plot. But for anyone other than dedicated gorehounds, there's not much going on here, unfortunately. Edmund Purdom, who played main man Harris, had of course been in Joe D'Amato's video nasty film Absurd, and the film that we'd covered previously, uh, Pieces. Now this film was his first and only directorial uh, credit, but he continued to act and do voiceover work until his death in 2009. Alan Lake, who played the killer Giles, had made various appearances in British television, such as Doctor Who in the 70s and The Avengers in the 60s. After his wife, the actress Diana Dawes, passed away in May of 1984, Lake fell into a deep depression and unfortunately shot himself in October of that year, not long after the film was released. Belinda Maine, who played Kate, had starred in the Italian rip-off movie Alien 2 on Earth, which was released in the UK as Alien Terror, while Mark Jones, a theatre actor, played the role of Sergeant Powell. 
He'd had some small roles in Doctor Who, the film version of Under Milk Wood, and he even had a role in Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. Kelly Baker, who played Sherry, would reappear as one of the snooty bullies in 1986's Slaughter High, while Pat Astley, who'd appeared in Are You Being Served and a bunch of sex comedies, would make her final appearance as Sharon the Model. Caroline Monroe also makes a cameo appearance as herself in a rather fun sequence, performing a disco track called Warrior of Love, while garbed in a flashy sequin dress and glittery wild hair. She recalls that she didn't actually meet Purdom on set, as her scenes, her scenes were all shot on one day on the second unit, so it appears at this point that they were actually at the stage of reshooting. Derek Ford, the temporary director for two days, wrote the main script before the changes, and Ford had been a director-director of mostly British sex comedies, such as This, That and the Other, and The Girl from Starship Venus, with very little experience in horror, which I believe is the reason that the film has such a sleazy tone to it. The rewrites and the additional gore sequences were done by Alan Birkinshaw, and he was a director who'd done the British horror film Killer's Moon and the adventure movie Invaders of the Lost Gold, which also starred Edmund Purdom. Now, as we've covered them before, I'll only briefly mention Stephen Manasian and Dick Randall. They produced the memorable slasher pieces, and they went on to make this film and the equally silly but fun slasher Slaughter High. Now, Des Dolan was the composer, but he made nothing else other than producing a film called The Hereafter, and his soundtrack is very synth-heavy and reminiscent of similar scores of the era. Alan Pudney, the cinematographer, came back to work on Slaughter High, while Ray Self, the director who carried on after Purdom and Ford, was mainly the editor, and he'd worked again on mostly British sex comedies. The added murder sequences were done by someone not that obscure in Italian horror, Giuseppe Ferranti, and he'd worked on a whole host of splatter films like Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat and Nine Tales, All the Colours of the Dark, Nightmare City, and Absurd, presumably where he met Edmund Purdom. He was assisted by Peter Lytton, whose only other credit is directing the very odd The Art of Cruising Men. Presumably due to its troubled production, it had a very brief theatrical release in the UK and the US, but it disappeared with little fanfare. The film then had a VHS release in the UK, just after the Video Nasty scandal had closed, so it definitely wasn't seized. It did, however, suffer massive cuts, amounting to two minutes and one second, with edits to all scenes of bloodshed and deleting, entirely, the bottle to the face death, the scene of the Santa encountering a naked female body hung up, and the dead body coming up on the trapdoor. This also leads to some bizarre continuity problems, such as in Kate's death, where she's only shown to be strangled, but her body later turns up with blood on it. All these cuts were waived anyway for the DVD re-release in 2003, and it has been uncut ever since, with several copies floating around due to a perceived public domain status. And that was Don't Open Till Christmas, everybody. So let's head on to our next seasonal shocker with New Year's Evil.
A woman called Yvonne, assistant to TV presenter Diane, is killed in a hotel room on New Year's Eve, unbeknownst to Diane and her manager Ernie. Diane's son Derek comes to visit his mother, but the show, entitled New Year's Evil, begins shooting live, counting down to midnight with pop rock songs with a phone-in feature to cast votes. Diane answers the phone to a man with a distorted voice, who threatens to kill someone close to her at midnight. Across town at a mental hospital, the killer dresses up as a doctor and seduces a nurse. Diane asks the police to protect her, who insists that she keeps the guy on the phone if he calls again. Derek tries to tell his mother something, but she neglects him due to being focused on the show, leading to him swallowing some pills and cutting up some of her clothes. The killer begins having sex with the nurse and stabs her at the point of midnight, recording the sounds on his radio. He phones Diane and warns her that another killing will happen in an hour, playing the recording for her. Donning a wig and moustache, the killer goes to a club and seduces another woman called Sally, who brings her friend Lisa along. Getting closer to the time that he promised to kill, and without a place to kill Sally, he pulls into a gas station and asks Lisa to get champagne, while he suffocates Sally with a plastic bag. Searching for her friend, Lisa follows Sally's scattered clothes and is led to a dumpster, where the killer suddenly bursts out and kills her. Hearing the recordings on the latest phone call, Diane lambasts him for being a nut, while the police find the bodies of Lisa and Sally. The killer, now donned in a priest outfit, falls foul of a biker gang and hides in a drive-in theatre. When they catch up to him, he stabs one of them and steals a car that has a girl inside. She escapes when some drunkards stop the car, and the police eventually prevent her from being killed. Heading straight to the building where Diane is, the killer knocks a police officer out and takes his clothes. Derek rebukes his mother for neglecting him and storms out from her room, leaving her to get changed, only for the killer to emerge from her bathroom. Instead of being shocked, Diane identifies it as her husband Richard. The police eventually work out that Richard is the killer once they find his car at the grindhouse, but they're too late to stop him from meddling with the elevators and knocking Diane out. He lets her listen to the recordings again and then confesses to being the killer, saying that he's fed up with the lascivious way she behaves around men and neglecting her own son. He chains her to the elevator and sends it up, intending to drop it and crush her at the bottom. The police corner Richard and open fire near him, destroying the elevator control panel and halting Diane's demise. Chasing into the roof, Richard dons a mask and jumps off the building, killing him. Derek finds his father's dead body and takes the mask. And as Diane is loaded into the ambulance, the driver is revealed to be Derek, with the mask on and with a dead ambulance man next to him. Ballet's here. A crazy new year to you. Happy new year to you. Ooh, some kind of voice you got there. Sound like the Phantom. You could call me that. So you got a name, Phantom? Call me Evil. Evil? You bad, honey? No. Just Evil. Well, listen, Mr. Evil, uh... Do you have a vote for the top song of the year? No. Just a New Year's 
resolution. I'm going to commit murder at midnight. I'm going to kill someone you know. Someone close to you. Well, we're really off to an interesting start, aren't we? Crazy trips must be a full moon. Well, let's start our own celebration here, okay? With Shadow! Arriving thick and fast on the heels of the roller coaster slasher film Friday the 13th, New Year's Evil follows the example of Terror Train and Prom Night of the same year, a relatively restrained effort with a heavier focus on character and suspense, though it's debatable whether that's wholly successful. It's certainly not a bad movie, but on the other hand, it's not necessarily memorable either, bar a few notable set pieces. The plot of the film follows TV star Diane Sullivan, alias Blaze, who receives a phone call on live television from a nut calling himself evil, and proclaiming that a woman will die at midnight for each of the time zones in America, with her being the final one to expire. New Year's Evil was born out of the 1979 deal that Canon Films had with Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, two Israeli cousins who acquired the company when the corporation ran into financial difficulties. Starting afresh with a new business plan to acquire bottom-barrel scripts and producing them to market, they managed to find a niche with audiences who loved B-movies and exploitation pictures, surprisingly having a much more welcome reception in the UK. Some of their more famous works are the sequels to Death Wish, uh, The Exterminator, as well as the Ninja Trilogy, which contains Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and Ninja 3 The Domination. Now, another loose trilogy was a triptych of unrelated slasher pictures that was spiritually a kind of revival of Canon's pre-Golan Globus films, like Silent Night, Bloody Night, and Savage Weekend, which we've actually covered previously. Now, New Year's Evil was the first film of this deal, with 1980's Schizoid and 1982's X-Ray, or Hospital Massacre, completing the triad. In a tonal shift from the usual slasher, we know what the killer looks like right from the get-go. He merely adopts different disguises, such as fake moustaches and wigs, but we know essentially what he looks like. There's also no real stalk and slash sequences as he hides in plain view and converses with his victims until the fated hour when he strikes them down. We also know that he's not after the final girl Diane until the end of the film, as she's in a specific building surrounded by law enforcement. While these things are slightly different and a little bit refreshing, they also have that painful side effect of resulting in zero tension. This wouldn't be so bad if the murder scenes were full of the sanguine stuff but they're woefully lacking. Most, if not all of them, are off-screen, and we get a few little aftermath shots. In some of these, it pays off, such as when Lisa and Sally are found by the police, but in others, not so well, like the nurse, or Yvonne's body that's found in the elevator shaft. What New Year's Evil does have as strengths is some of its set pieces. The scene in which Lisa discovers Sally is missing and following... The scene in which Lisa discovers Sally is missing and follows a trail of her clothes was genuinely quite surprising when it turns out that it's the killer lurking in the dumpster rather than just her friend's dead body. Another standout moment is when Diane has been tied up to the elevator by Richard the killer and he sabotages it to drop her to her death. For what is a cheaply made thriller, this sequence is actually quite impressive. 
Another strength, although a slightly unpleasant one, is the air of misogyny that's rife through the picture. The killer's MO is specifically about frenzied stabbings and mutilations to his victim's breasts. The police chief chastises Diane for creating the very problem that she's complaining about. I don't know how, somehow through rock and roll. And also Richard's soliloquy about his reasons for his murders. It's directly aimed at Diane for presumed lascivious behaviour and the neglecting of her son. This and other little nuances add a real sense of women hatred and it lends to the killer's nasty, vicious tone. Also not really helped by the fact that Diane is not a massively sympathetic character. She's clearly narcissistic to a point and is lacking a little in the parental care of her son. The scene in which Richard declares the reason why he's done what he's done, it's interesting that he removes Diane's jewellery piece by piece before tying her to the elevator. Like the emasculation that he's complaining about that she's supposedly done to him, it's like he's removing her femininity by force in a kind of vengeful misogyny. This is all rather silly, however, when his reasons are completely at odds with his own behaviour. Despite feeling castrated, in his words, he's the one who's seducing at least two women during the course of the film, before killing them. And he's also guilty of neglecting his son, as he's too busy gallivanting around and killing girls. And his method of killing women at the stroke of midnight seems to serve no real purpose other than getting attention, which is rather childish, and not to mention a lot of effort for seemingly nothing. Ros Kelly, who plays Final Girl Diane, she'd previously been on Happy Days, and she'd had appearances in other TV shows like Dukes of Hazard and Charlie's Angels. New Year's Evil, though, was her only real main role, other than 1981's Full Moon High, after which her appearances seemed to dry up completely. And she's also recently encountered trouble with the law enforcement, after angrily shooting and vandalising her neighbours' cars and homes when a car alarm woke her up as well as a probation violation after assaulting her ex-boyfriend with a cane. Kip Neven was also mainly a TV star who continues to act today. He recalls that the iconic voice of evil was originally meant to be achieved using a device designed for people after having laryngectomies, but the device didn't produce the sound that the crew wanted. Neven then said, what if I do this? And he spoke in the iconic voice without the device, and the director liked the new sound. So ultimately... The device was purely decorational in the film. Grant Kramer made his debut in this film, going on to much more recognisable success in Killer Clowns from Outer Space. He continued to have minor roles in films through the 80s and 90s, but he went into producing in the 2000s, such as The Lone Survivor, The November Man, and the reported sequel to Killer Clowns. Chris Wallace, who plays Lieutenant Clayton, appeared in the video nasty Don't Answer the Phone earlier in 1980, while Louisa Moritz, who plays the vacuous Sally, had previously appeared in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Death Race 2000, both in 1975. Taff O'Connor, who portrayed Jane, had an uncredited appearance in Rocky II and would go on to have a very disturbing demise in 1981's Galaxy of Terror, while John Alderman, who played the minor character Dr. Reed, he'd been in Trashy Slasher Drive-In Massacre and would appear later in the Section 3 nasty film Superstition. Director Emmett Alston has a rather small copybook, directing some ninja-related films or some comedies. It seems that he was scheduled to direct the Enter the Ninja series, but he lost to Michael Winner when star Charles Bronson insisted upon using him again from Death Wish, relegating Alston to second unit directing only. Writer Leonard Neubauer also similarly has a small resume, with previous titles like Black Snake and Run for the Hills. 
With Golan and Globus's names being used to sell the picture, the film's other producers were Christopher Pierce, who worked on Schizoid and X-Ray, the other slasher pictures from Canon, uh, American Ninja 4, Hellbound, Over the Top, and Cyborg with Jean-Claude Van Damme. There was Mark L. Rosen, he produced Alligator, Hell Knight, and bizarrely, Spice World, starring the Spice Girls. Composer W. Michael Lewis also scored the video nasty Shogun Assassin, which was a re-edited Lone Wolf and Cub film, as well as Blood Beach and Enter the Ninja. Assistant Lauren Rinder aided Lewis on the latter two films as well. Probably the more successful crew member was director of photography Thomas E. Ackerman, who did it under the pseudonym of Edward Thomas. Now, Ackerman would go on to work as a DP on hugely popular films like Beetlejuice, Moonwalker, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Dennis the Menace, Baby's Day Out, Jumanji, George of the Jungle, Rat Race, Anchorman, and Scary Movie 4. Editor Richard Brummer went on to a variety of dodgy-sounding exploitation films, such as Spilt Milk, Sex and the Teenage Mind, and most oddly, Fertilise the Blaspheming Bombshell. The film was released in 1980 in the US on Boxing Day, but it didn't make it into the UK until the next year, understandably as it released at the very end of 1980. It was released uncut in UK cinemas in 1981, to little fanfare, probably due to its inexplicitness in the wake of Paramount's Friday the 13th. It did make it onto VHS the following year, though, in 82, again with an uncut print. 1982, of course, was smack dab in the middle of the video nasty witch hunts, so it would have shared the shelves with the notorious forbidden fruits of the era. It may have attracted some attention due to the cover, which has the killer clutching a switchblade. Now, the authorities and Mary Whitehouse's conservative cronies took issue with anything imitable on the video covers, infamously taking issue with pranks, bloody moon and toolbox murders. It may have also aroused the suspicion of the police due to the New Year theme. Silent Night, Deadly Night and Christmas Evil were pounced upon for their supposed betrayal of good taste and sanctity by colouring a festive season with dark themes. This potential ruination of Auld Lang Syne may have caused discomfort to sanctimonious cine Nazis, who were determined to save our kids from videotapes. But since then, the film has actually not had a re-release in the UK, but if submitted, I'd no doubt that it would pass uncut. Probably at Certificate 15, too, because it's really not that graphic or that shocking. And that was New Year's Evil. And it's also the last episode from Nasty Pasty for a while now, guys. As some of you know, today was actually meant to be the, have the next episode too. But I'm afraid this guy needs to take a small break from podcasting for a little bit. I've got another project that I'm really passionate about, and it's been waylaid a little by the podcast stuff. 
I'm still going to continue, of course, but I'm just a little burnt out right now and I need some respite. At the moment, I'm planning to return in March with a new schedule and also some renewed vigour. And episode 17 will be part of that return. In the meantime, though, you lucky folks can catch up with any episodes you've missed and please do send in any feedback on the show or any of the films we've covered. You can email me at nastypastypodcast at gmail.com or you can send things in through Twitter or Facebook. I'll still be on social media. Now, the next episode is on non-sploitation films with Flavia the Heretic and The Devils, and you've got plenty of time to catch these. But for now, goodbye, everyone, and I will see you in a few months. Take care, everyone. (laughs) 